Hebrews eleven seventeen. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for how it speaks to us today. We pray for your blessing upon us now as we consider these important words from your eternal word. And we pray for your blessing upon our missionaries and our missionary friends who are serving you in foreign fields. Thank you, God, for your presence with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. At the end of Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of the Hebrews quotes a verse from Habakkuk, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And he really makes his focus a phrase from verse 4 that simply says this. And it's repeated three times in the New Testament, quoted three different places. The just shall live by faith. And he establishes this principle for those who are justified by God's work and who do a work and live a life for God, that they should live that life by faith. Well, no one would be blamed for asking the writer of the Hebrews, what do you mean by that? What does it mean to live by faith? And if we were to ask the writer to the letter of the Hebrews that question, he would answer by thanking you for asking it. And he was saying, let me show you what I mean, because I'm going to spend all of chapter 11 giving examples of great men and women of the faith and how they lived by faith and how you can live by faith. You know, one of the things I think is fascinating, just the whole premise behind Hebrews chapter 11, is that we can learn from people that we've never personally met. That you can live, learn from somebody who lived 2,000 years before your time. You can learn from them because it's the same God in heaven and human nature is much the same. So I don't know about you. I don't know if you have mentors in your life or coaches or people that you help. And that's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing to have human beings who kind of pour into you and help you. But you know what? You can also have mentors in your life of dead people, people that you've never met personally. But what they live with God can be real in your life and you can learn from them. And we're going to learn hopefully this morning from four particular individuals mentioned in our text. We're going to learn from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob and from Joseph. Ready for this? First, Abraham, verse 17, where we read. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from which he also received him in a figurative sense. 
Well, here, when the writer of the Hebrews considers the life of Abraham, he brings out a story that's well familiar to many of us. And a matter of fact, is really sort of one of the summit peaks of faith in the entire Bible. It's this amazing incident from Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham was willing to offer up his son, Isaac. Do you remember something of that story? Abraham and Sarah, this dear couple, they had waited many years to have a child. They went through that very difficult thing that many people go through, especially in our day and age, where they want to conceive, but they can't. And then it went on so long that they went beyond the years of bearing children. Nevertheless, God promised. He promised that a miracle would come to Abraham and Sarah, and that even in their old age, they would miraculously conceive and bear a child. That God would renew their bodies, and through normal procreation functions of younger people, so to speak, they would once again enjoy children in their life. And it was a marvelous, marvelous promise that God made to Abraham and Sarah. But then one day, quite unexpectedly, God spoke to Abraham and he spoke this to Abraham. And we don't know exactly how old Isaac was at this age. Think somewhere between 15 years of age and 20 years that this wonderful son that was sort of the light and the fulfillment of their life. God said something unexpected and even shocking to Abraham. He said, I want you to take your son. What's the phrase that's used? Take your son, his only begotten son. And I want you to offer him as a sacrifice before me. This was shocking and unexpected to Abraham. Because even though the text doesn't tell us this specifically, if you'll allow me a little, I hope, holy speculation. I imagine that one of the things that ran through Abraham's mind was this. God, Yahweh, I thought you were different. I know that the gods of the Canaanites demand human sacrifice and sometimes child sacrifice. But I thought you were different. I thought you were different from all those other gods and that you didn't want the blood of our children, that you didn't want human blood poured out as some kind of bizarre and brutal sacrifice before you. Maybe you're not so different from those gods, but you are my God. Nonetheless, I will do it. Do you see how that would strike Abraham It's very strange? So he went with Moriah, excuse me, he went with Isaac to Moriah, the land of Moriah, which, by the way, is today modern day Jerusalem. They went there. They traveled several days to get there. And when they came to the land of Moriah, there was a specific hill where God told them would be the place where he would sacrifice his only begotten son, Isaac. He put the wood that would be used to burn the fire of sacrifice. He put the sacrificial wood upon the shoulders of his only begotten son. And then he and Abraham, they marched up that hill. The father and his only begotten son, where they came to the summit of the hill and they built an altar. And Isaac asked the question, father, where's the sacrifice? He said, don't worry, son, the Lord will provide a sacrifice. And in an amazing display of faith, Isaac surrendered to the altar and he laid down upon it when easily he was of a age and of a strength where he could have easily overpowered his father and said, forget this business. Why don't you lay down on the altar, old man? He didn't do that. He laid down on the altar and the Bible says that 
Abraham was ready to plunge the knife into his only begotten son. And as he stood there above his son, ready to do it, God stopped him. This is what it says in Genesis chapter 22, verse 12. God said from heaven, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Friends, I want you to see something that God said something very emphatic in this whole situation to Abraham. He emphasized the point. I do not want human sacrifice. I tell you, stop, don't do it. And while the pagan gods of the grotesque peoples that surrounded the people of Israel accepted human sacrifice, and they seemed to be bloodthirsty gods, God established through this that even though he tested Abraham's heart, he established, I do not want your human sacrifice. I am different from all those other supposed gods. Well, it was a remarkable occasion because God then immediately showed Abraham and Isaac a ram caught in a thicket for sacrifice. And Abraham offered that ram instead of Isaac. It says here in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said this day in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And ladies and gentlemen, in that same place, it was provided. Because what we know, biblical geography tells us that it was at that same place. And ladies and gentlemen, it might have been on the exact same spot. It may have been within a stone's throw of it that where Jesus Christ himself was sacrificed. In the mount of the Lord, it was provided and the father offered up his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, for our sins. Isn't that powerful? That God didn't want Isaac, but he wanted to give a powerful and enduring picture of the sacrifice that Jesus would make on the cross to die as a sacrifice so that he would bear our shame, our sin, our guilt, and that he would bear it upon himself on the cross. That's a beautiful and powerful thing. Now, do you understand what the writer of the Hebrews praises about Abraham's faith? I used to have it all wrong in my head. I used to think that Abraham's faith was in that he thought he believed that God would stop him when he held the knife over his son's body. Here he is with the knife over Isaac and, and okay, God, you can stop me anytime now. Matter of fact, in the way it kind of played out in my head, the, the strange way I picture Abraham with about 15 minutes standing with the knife above there. All right, God, any, any time now, just say stop. Do you realize that was not Abraham's faith in the slightest? The writer of the Hebrews makes it very clear what his faith was. Look at it there in verse 19. It says that he was concluding that God was able to raise him up from the dead. Abraham's confidence was not that God would stop him, but that if he, in an unbelievable act of obedience, went and actually plunged the knife in his son and took his son's life, that God would raise him up from the dead. How could he believe such a thing? Because he believed the promise of God. And the promise of God was this, that son, Isaac, is going to be the one through whom all your descendants come. And to that point, Isaac had not had any children. So Abraham knew one thing. That boy, Isaac, is absolutely indestructible until he has kids. Once he has kids, all bets are off. But I know, I know that he cannot pass from this earth until he provides children because God promised it. 
And if God has to raise the dead in order to keep his promise, he's going to do it. You know what I find amazing about this? To this point in biblical history, no one had ever been raised from the dead. I mean, the scriptures are completely silent on that. You could imagine that perhaps Abraham wondered, could it even happen? Could God do such a thing? But he said, no, listen, I may not know for sure whether or not God can raise the dead, but I know absolutely for sure God cannot break his promise. And he believed that God could do something completely new in the keeping of his promise. You know, we talked about this last week, how faith is really like sight. That we use our physical, natural vision to interact with the material world around us. Now, of course, we have other senses and we rely on them as well. But there's something about sight that helps us to interact with the material world around us. Well, faith is like the sense with which we interact with the spiritual world around us. And we can see things by faith. And Abraham could see by faith that God could do something that he never knew God could do before, that God could raise the dead, but he would not break his promise. That's amazing faith. And we can learn something by that. All right. Who's next on our list? First, it was Abraham. Second, it was Isaac. Now, if you were to pick one event marking faith from the life of Isaac, I know what I would personally choose. I would choose the event where he actually submitted to lay down on that altar with his dad hanging with a knife over him. To me, that took a lot of faith from Isaac to do that. But isn't it interesting that the Holy Spirit speaking through the writer of the Hebrews did not pick that incident in the life of Isaac. Look at what he picks here in verse 20, where it says, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Oh, now he's drawing our attention back to Genesis chapter 27, where Isaac, the patriarch of the family, blessed Jacob and Esau, his two twin sons. Now, when you read it here in verse 20, it sounds all very holy, doesn't it? Don't you think of a little church service where he's blessing the two sons and he does it by faith? You know what's sort of funny about this? Is it didn't happen anything like that. If you go back to Genesis chapter 27, you don't need to turn there. Read it later at home, later on. But I'll just tell you what the story is pretty much like. When you see what actually happened in Genesis chapter 27... This was one of the most severely dysfunctional families in the entire Bible. Listen, your dysfunctional family, that's nothing new. The Bible is filled with them. You see, Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, had two sons and they were twins. Before those sons were ever born, God promised that the younger would be greater than the older that the older would serve the younger. And this went against all the custom of the times. And as it turned out, it also went against Isaac preferences because as the two boys grew up, they had very different personalities. Esau was a man's man. He was rugged. He was hairy. He loved the field. He loved to hunt and fish or do whatever. Man's man, that's Esau. Jacob, a little bit different, and I hope I'm not defaming Jacob when I say this, but it's a sense we get from the scriptures. Maybe I'll get a punch in the shoulder when I get to heaven from Jacob for saying this. Jacob seems to be like a little bit of a mama's boy. So Esau, man's man. Jacob, at least a bit of a mama's boy. And Isaac loved Esau more. So when it came time to pass down the blessing, the covenant blessing that Isaac received from his father, Abraham, 
Instead of listening to what God said about those boys, what God announced, no, the younger is going to be over the older because Jacob was younger than Esau. Isaac thought that he would turn all of that around and he would pass the blessing on to Esau. Now, talk about dysfunctional. Here they go in this whole scene where Rebecca says, no, but Jacob should get the blessing. This is what God wants. So I know what we're going to do. We're going to connive and cheat and lie in order to get Jacob the spiritual blessing. So Jacob, run out and go put on a suit of hairy clothes. I would have loved to see what that looked like. (laughs) Jacob walks in there and he looks like Sasquatch or something like that. I'll cook up some food and I can fool your father with the food I make. You go in there and tell him you're Esau and receive the blessing. Go ahead, receive this great spiritual blessing and receive it under fraudulent basis. And God will really honor that. So he runs in there, he puts on the Sasquatch suit and he says all these things. He lies straight out to his dad, gives him the food and Jacob receives the blessing from Isaac Because Isaac thought he was giving it to Esau. He was old and blind. What happens as soon as he receives the blessing? The real Esau runs in. He says, hey, dad, I got the food that you wanted. I'm ready for the blessing. Now, friends, this blows up into a huge family explosion built upon all the dysfunction that was so deep in this family. Here's my question for you. Who acted godly in this whole scenario? I mean, this thing seems more like a, like an episode of I Love Lucy, you know, with all the crazy things happening. Oh, who acted godly? Did Isaac act godly? No. Rebecca? No way. Jacob? Forget it. Esau? No, not even him. None of them acted godly. They all acted selfish, devious, self-serving. As my kids said, they had that YOLO attitude, you know, just kind of acting like divas, each and every one of them. Then how did God move in this? How is this an example of faith? I'll show you how I look at the text again. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Isaac came to faith when he realized that he actually blessed Jacob instead of Esau and that for all his determination to circumvent, to defeat the announced plan of God, God beat him at his own game. Matter of fact, let me read to you a couple passages from Genesis in Genesis chapter 27, verse 33. It says that when Isaac discovered that he had been tricked, it says that Isaac trembled exceedingly. He started shaking. As a matter of fact, the ancient Hebrew is very vivid. It says that he started shaking like a leaf. Why? Because he knew that he had tried to box God in. He knew that he had tried to defeat God's plan and God beat him. He realized this, that he would always be defeated when he he tried to go against God's plan. And then what did he do? Genesis chapter 27, verse 33 says that he said to Esau, no, I bless Jacob. And here's the one. And indeed, he shall be blessed. Ladies and gentlemen, this covenant blessing wasn't something that could be obtained by trickery. It had to be bestowed by God. And Isaac realized that God was working out his plan despite the best efforts of Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, and Esau to mess up his plan. God was still going to do his thing. So what did he learn by faith? By faith, 
Isaac could see that his puny attempt to box God in was defeated. And Isaac was big enough to say this. Okay, God, you win. Let Jacob be blessed with the birthright and bless Esau in your own way. That was faith, but in an unexpected place. Well, who's the next one? We've covered Abraham. We've covered Isaac. What about Jacob? Well, let's read verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. Now we get into the last few chapters of the book of Genesis, and we take this man, Jacob, who had stolen the birthright, and here the picture is he's leaning on his staff. He's dependent on the staff. He can't stand without it. And then he reaches out a hand to bring blessing to the sons of Joseph. Well, what's so great in faith about that? That doesn't seem very spectacular. Listen, I'm going to be very honest with you. It's difficult to pick a highlight of faith out of the life of Jacob. He's just not a very faith-filled guy. And so God kind of had to, I hope this doesn't sound wrong, God stretched it a little bit to get something of faith from the life of Jacob. But actually, it's very meaningful. Did you notice his posture? He's leaning upon the staff as he blessed the sons of Joseph. Why did he have to lean on the staff? Because of something that happened some years before. You see, Jacob had that instinct of the con man, of the conniver, of the devious man who never really trusts God, but always tries to figure out a tricky way to get what he wants. Do you know the type? Maybe you are the type. But you see, Jacob had some spiritual experience. I don't want to act like he was completely devoid of it, but mostly he trusted in himself. Until one day, God got a hold of him at a place where the Bible says that Jacob wrestled with God. I'm summarizing some of the biblical account. So let me just get to the summary of it. The Bible says that Jacob wrestled with God and oh, what a wrestling match it was. No, wait a minute. Let me take that back. Let me tell you what the Bible really says. The Bible doesn't say that Jacob wrestled with God. It says that God wrestled with Jacob. And you know, there's a difference between the two. You might be wrestling with God today. And, you know, you kind of are on the offensive of God. Hey, God, what about this? Hey, God, what about that? But do you know that there's times, very discernible times in our life where God will turn the tables and God, so to speak, goes on the offensive against us. And he says, I'm going to wrestle with you. And I'm going to put you in a place where you have to trust me. Have you experienced that? Have you had God take you on and throw a little jujitsu on you? And suddenly you realize he's God and you're not. Have you really come to that realization? It's something that we need to keep coming back to. So I don't mind saying it to you again and again. But we need to realize he's God and we're not. And our place is to surrender and to submit to him. And when we fight, when we push, the best thing that can happen for us is God comes to us and he says, I'm going to wrestle with you and I'm going to take you down so that I can build you up again. By the end of this wrestling match that Jacob had with God, Maybe Jacob thought he had the upper hand to begin with, but by the end of it, he's hanging on for dear life and he's crying out, bless me, please. I won't let go of you until you bless me. 
Do you know what God did to change the wrestling match? They were fighting apparently evenly for a while. Then God reached out his hand and he touched Jacob's hip and it instantly put it out of socket. I have no personal experience, but that sounds very painful to me. A dislocated hip right at that moment. And friends, that's why from that point on, Jacob walked with a limp. And when he blessed his grandsons, he had to lean upon a staff. Can you picture Jacob leaning upon the staff? The fact that God defeated him, that God bested him. And let me say this. And I say it with love. I don't mean an ounce of harshness in what I'm going to say, but I'm just going to try to give it to you straight. The best thing that could happen for some of you is for God to wrestle with you and to defeat you. Because then you'll hang on to him the way that you should and he can rebuild. That was Jacob leaning upon his staff, remembering why he couldn't stand up straight and why he needed to depend upon God. And from that posture, he could bless his sons. You know, there are some people for whom faith seems to come easy. Isn't that true? Don't you know those people? Maybe they annoy you. The Christian life, the spiritual realm, trusting God, man, it seems to be so easy for them. Do you know people like that? You know, for others of us, it's very difficult. I don't know why exactly. I don't know if I can explain it. Maybe it has to do with personality type. Maybe it has to do just with inborn tendencies. Maybe it has to do with, with I don't know what it is, maybe upbringing. I don't know. But I know this, and I can't really say it from Scripture, but just from my own observation, that the spiritual life, that trusting God, that following after him, it's much easier for some people than for others. And I think of Jacob as a man for whom it was inherently difficult. But you know what? He still ended up in God's heroes of faith list. And so can you. I mean that as a special and appointed word to anybody here. You feel like, man, when it comes to the things of faith, you had a disadvantage for other people. It seems so much easier. God still loves you. He cares about you. He's got a place for you in his plan. And you shouldn't feel like you're always on the back burner or a second class citizen because these things of the Christian life and of truly trusting God, they don't come to you as naturally. Now, even Jacob could say, I look back on my life and there was a lot of disobedience. There was a lot of conniving, but I am going to lean on my staff. I'm going to remember how God bested me and got a hold of me. And in faith, I'm going to look forward to the future. And I'm going to bless my grandsons. That's beautiful. That's powerful. That's seeing something by faith. All right, quickly now, because time escapes us. Verse 22, we have our fourth subject. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, now verse 22, Joseph. Let's read that. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instruction concerning his bones. What? (laughs) Do you know something of the life of of Joseph? Joseph is one of the most amazing and outstanding people in the entire Bible. And his life was 
filled with faith. If I were to pick a highlight of faith from the life of Joseph, I might have a very tough time doing it. I mean, I could go back to the beginning. I could say that he was a man who had faith to see dreams and visions, that he was a man who had faith to trust and love God even when he was terribly mistreated by other people. He was a man who had faith to obey God in the most difficult temptations and circumstances. He was a man who had faith to not give up when he was unjustly suffering for doing what was right. He had faith to speak to the Pharaoh of Egypt and to interpret his dream. He had faith to save the world through his organization and administration. Joseph had the faith to love and to forgive those who hurt him. He had the faith to see God's hand in it all when he told his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Friend, that is a life that's a perpetual highlight reel of faith. And so where the writer Hebrews says, I'm going to take one event from Joseph's life and highlight it in faith. He picks this. The fact that when Joseph was about to die, he said, don't put my body in the ground and don't put it in some pyramid. You leave my coffin, or I guess it would have been a sarcophagus or whatever. You keep that above ground because we don't belong here in Egypt. And when we go back to Canaan, you take my body because that's where it's going to be buried. My friends, why is that such an amazing example of faith? Well, look at it again. Verse 22, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. God told Abraham several generations before he told Abraham, Israel is going to be in Egypt for 400 years. Now, the Bible didn't exactly tell us this, but I'm going to speculate just a little bit that Abraham told Isaac that that Isaac told Jacob that, and that Jacob told Joseph that, and Joseph knew they were going to be in Egypt 400 years. He said, I don't want the children of Israel to forget that we're not Egyptians and our real home is in the promised land. And if my dead body can testify to that, then let it be. So I'll tell you what I picture in my mind. I picture a bunch of Hebrew school kids who live in Egypt out on a field trip and they're going for the museum. And the teacher says, well, here's the sarcophagus of our great forefather, Joseph. And a hand goes up from a child in the back and says, teacher, teacher, why don't we bury this? All the Egyptians, they love to bury the things, put them in pyramids, build great monuments. Why don't we bury this? And the teacher says, I tell you why we don't bury it. Because we aren't Egyptians. We are the people of God. And God has a promised land for us. And it might be hundreds of years in the future. But we are going to what God has for us. Joseph, in a remarkable display of faith, trusted God's promise, even though it was a long way off in the fulfillment. And he wanted his life to testify of that faith. Isn't that beautiful? Can you believe God's promise the same way for your life? Yes, you can. Because each and every one of these men, I'll tell you something about them. They were not supermen. They shared your weaknesses. You can share their faith. 
and God working in you. That's exactly how it'll be. You will do just what Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph did. You will have faith to see God do completely new things. You will have faith to see God well enough to give in to him and let him overcome you. You will have faith to see God's work in the future and not get trapped in the past. And you will have faith to see that we can proclaim God to be faithful to his promise, even by our dead body. That is the life and the walk of faith. That's what God has for you. Father in heaven, I pray. And I pray, God, that there would not be a single person here this morning who would leave with a greater faith in faith, with a greater faith in themselves. Rather, Lord, we would remember the absolutely essential nature of the object, of the focus of our faith. And we do not focus our faith on faith itself. We do not focus our faith on ourselves. But we focus our faith on you, the living and the enthroned God. And we give you praise for it. We honor you and worship you together and ask that you speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's Trevor. Yes. Now, I should act surprised, but Trevor did the questions from the first service as well, so I'm not surprised in the slightest. No, and we actually got some new questions, too. And, uh, uh, I'm were just, any of them good? They're very good questions. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to say, this, this service is so, so much less sassy than the first service. I get, I get so many prank questions, uh, so thank you for, for making me not Did you get some through. good prank questions the first service? Uh, people just think they're, they're clever. Yeah, okay, and, yeah. All right, I know the time. You, you, I am the type. Yeah. That's the problem. You, you hear a lot of the Some same of those things. were me texting to you while wow, I was preaching. Right. Yes. Okay. Um, we'll just start off with a couple of general questions about Hebrews 11. Um, maybe just speak to a little bit how salvation and faith worked for these Old Testament characters. Okay. What's very interesting in each one of these had faith. And they were made right before God by faith. Sometimes there's a misconception that people think this. In the Old Testament, people were saved by works. In the New Testament, people are saved by faith. No, there's nobody been saved by works. But no, the difference is their faith was in what looked forward. The work of the Messiah that was yet to happen and his sacrifice on their behalf. Our faith looks back to the already finished work of the Messiah. So the focal point is the same. The Messiah and his work, they just look forward to it and we look back to it. Right. Okay, well, let's get into the text a little bit. Um, It seems like a lot of people can have a, a little bit of a hard time with the idea of God asking Abraham to seemingly kill his son Isaac. So maybe a question we could ask is, how are we to deal with testings from God when they seem to be contrary from his nature? They seem to be. Okay, here's the great advantage that we have that Abraham did not have. Please remember, Abraham did not have God's authoritative word in written form. We have it. So if somebody, if somebody came to me today and said, God asked me to sacrifice my child, Not only would I tell them that's wrong, I'd call the police and make sure that their children were okay. 
And I would point them to the Bible where God emphatically said no to Abraham's sacrifice and how passage after passage points out that God is different. Now, the difference with Abraham or with us is that we have God's authoritative word written for us so that we can appeal to that and be rooted in that. Abraham didn't have it, so it was a different situation for him. Probably one of the most popular questions we got uh, was, why did it say that Isaac was um, Abraham? I get all those names mixed up sometimes. Oh, me too. You know know what? Actually, I did pretty good through this message, but usually I'm mixing them up like crazy. Okay. So who do you mean? Isaac is the son of Abraham, correct? Yes. yes. Isaac is the son of Abraham. Or, Abraham. Yeah. Okay, so why is Isaac referred to as the only begotten son? I, Ishmael must not have felt pretty good about that. No, he must not. But look, this shows that as far as the covenant was concerned, Ishmael didn't even exist. And that's what we're dealing with. We're talking about as far as the covenant was concerned. Now, look, God didn't hate Ishmael. God took care of him. God blessed Ishmael. But as far as the covenant was concerned, Ishmael didn't even exist because it was the covenant from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Is there significance to to the word begotten? There is um, because it refers that it was not his son in any way by adoption, but by procreation. Okay. Um, If Jacob was going to get the birthright all along, that was God's plan. Why would God not have him just be born first? To blow our minds. No, in a sense, I know that's kind of a flip answer, but it's true. It's true. Okay, understand this idea that the firstborn is always preferred. That is not a biblical command. That is a human construct. And sometimes God loves to trample over human constructs to establish his work. And so God says, look, I know it's mostly true that the firstborn gets the privilege, but not always. And when I want to go beyond that, I'm going to blow your mind and do that. Okay, just a couple more. Um, So this whole process of Jacob wrestling with God, obviously God is in control and he can end it whenever he wants, as is seen with with his hip. Uh, But the process of wrestling must be good in some way because God allowed it to go on. So how is wrestling with God in that sense good for us? It's good because it exhausts our self-reliance and God needs to exhaust our self-reliance. It needs to be exhausted out of us somehow or another. And if the only way God can exhaust our self-reliance, our self-focus is, and and I I don't mean this flippantly, but by whooping our tail, then it's a gift from him to do it. And look, as painful as that wrestling match was for Jacob, it was the best thing that ever happened to him. He walked away from that with a limp, but with a great big smile because it was the best thing. And it is a good thing for God to confront us, to wrestle with us, and to exhaust us of our self-reliance. And just one more um... I just think it's so interesting that Hebrews 11 is so filled with such rascally characters, especially these four. Um, What encouragement can we get from them being included in this great list of faith as we go out today? Well, isn't it just that, that we can share this same faith? That God working in our life, 
You know, sometimes we put these biblical characters on some amazing pedestal and they were men and women just like us. They shared our weaknesses. We can share their faith. So stop setting your sights so low for what God can do in you and through you. There might be somebody here and you feel very defeated. Maybe there's a stubborn sin or a habit or just a a, a fear that comes into your life. And you feel like, man, I've prayed a thousand times. I want you to be renewed in faith today again and say God can do it and he will do it in your life. Right on. Well, this time we're going to close with just one more song of worship. And as we do that, the prayer team is going to come up too. And, and, you know, if you have identified with anything in the message, with a need of increase in faith or any need at all this morning, please come up and pray. Let's all stand together. Uh, Dave, you want to close this in prayer? I do. Hey, aren't we grateful for Trevor? He does a very good job with these questions. Yes. Good job, Trevor. Let's pray. Father in heaven. Um, We want to be people of faith. And I pray in particular, Lord, for those among us. And honestly, Lord, maybe they've never articulated this before, but they understand that they're just not as inclined to faith or the spiritual life as some other people are. Lord, I pray for those people among us that you would show them your love and your grace and your comfort. And you'd tell them it's okay, and that you would lead them into deeper faith exactly the way that they need it. But Lord, do it all for us. We look to you and we rely on you in Jesus' name. Amen.